Shalom, y'all. That's what they say in Texas or Tennessee, I think. Well, I do have an accent. I do. I, I grew up in New Zealand where our English is like the English English. And uh, we, we uh, uh, for me growing up, like gay meant happy and lesbian was the capital of Portugal. <laughs> either, either, uh, tomato, tomato and all that. But anyway, it's, it's great to be here. I've lived in Israel 31 years and I still haven't lost my accent. And it's been a privilege to be uh, a tour guide for 17 years where I met Ross and some of you others here. So uh, shalom to you who have been on tour and shalom to you who are planning on coming in a few months to Israel. And uh, those of you who are thinking about it, I, I highly recommend uh, coming. It's a life-changing experience. Um, not everyone can take a couple of years or three years to go to a, a Bible college, but maybe eight to ten days with a, with a good tour guide, it's, it's a great investment. So if you're thinking about that, uh, uh, let Ross know and maybe we can work something out. So. But it's uh, my honor to come and share God's word. Um, when COVID began, and uh, all the tours that I had booked canceled. I was like, what do I do? Um, the Lord opened a door, because at the same time that COVID started, Zoom started, right? More or less. And uh, so I've been doing some online teaching. And uh, it's a Jewish tradition. We go right through the Torah, the five books of Moses, in an annual cycle from Genesis 1 to Deuteronomy 34. And then we start again. And so we go through about four or five chapters a week. So I've been doing that, and you can it's all for free online if you're interested, or if you're interested in joining the live uh, Bible study. It's only 6 o'clock in the morning uh, your time on Saturdays, but uh, uh, it's exciting because you get to be part of the, the discussion at the end. In any event, that's my, uh, pr you know, my advertising, my promo. But, and I know you're hungry for God's word as I am. So uh, we're going to get up on the, the board in a second, Psalm 90. And that's going to be our, our passage for this morning. And it's about Moses at the end of his life. He writes a psalm, giving us a few kind of um, ideas and suggestions and uh, pointing us in uh, the direction that kind of he's learned some lessons from. And, uh, you know, the Hebrew name for Moses, we say, does anyone know, by the way, except for Ross, anyone know how to say Moses in Hebrew? What was that? Not Moses. What? Moishe. Yes. That's right. You're from Ethiopia? Eritrea. Okay. Apologies. Uh, we say Moshe. And it literally means to be drawn out of the water. And uh, we're not sure why uh, Batya uh, called him that, but it's suggested because his life would be associated with stories about water, coming out of Egypt, crossing the Jordan, uh, speaking to the rock, striking the rock, um, 
in any event, Moses is considered one of the greatest shepherds in our history, along with uh, David, along with Abraham. And uh, of course, these men are considered also messianic uh, uh, figures in the, in, the, in the Jewish religion. For David, of course, David was promised that from his seed will never cease someone to sit on the throne of David. And uh, Moses, was prom- he promised himself that the Lord would raise up someone like him. And uh, of course, Abraham was promised that uh, through his seed, all the nations will be blessed. But Moses, can we get the, the verse up on the board? Thank you. So he starts off Psalm 90, Lord, you have been our dwelling place throughout all generations. And uh, when you think about Moses, probably one of the greatest things he did, apart from leading the Israelites out of uh, Egypt, was the, the receiving uh, not only the laws from Mount Sinai from the Lord, but also the pattern for the tabernacle. The tabernacle being the portable house of God, as the Lord pro- uh, uh, commanded in uh, Exodus 25:2, and they shall prepare for me a sanctuary or a dwelling place. And that Hebrew word dwelling place is the word shechen. And it's actually from the word shechina or shekinah, where we get the dwelling place of God. And uh, that was a house. And if you actually study Exodus and Leviticus, the whole idea of the tabernacle and later on the temple, the tabernacle and the temple were exactly the same, except the tabernacle was portable. The temple was more permanent. But the whole idea was it's a house. Remember what the Lord said, my house will be called a house of prayer. So the idea is a house and the idea is uh, to be invited into that house. Probably everyone's most unfavorite book in the Bible would, you know, most people say Leviticus. Actually, that's the first book that Jewish children are taught when they study Torah. And when you truly understand it, you'll, you'll, you'll see why. Because uh, it's all about an invitation. And the invitation comes through the altar and through the sacrifices. The, the Hebrew word sacrifice is korban. And it's from the word lehit karev, which means to draw near. So it's like God is saying, come, draw near, come into my house. And you've got the whole sacrificial system with the priests inviting you in, bringing the sacrifices. Of course, they were all butchers. You know that, right? All the priests. And, um, and they would quite often hang the uh, animals upside down and let all the blood uh, drip. And of course, you as the one who is handing over the sacrifice, you're standing there. You're seeing this poor innocent animal's life being drained out of it. And um, you're seeing its kidneys and its livers and everything. And you're thinking as those livers and kidneys are coming out, you're thinking of all the, the emotions that are connected to it. Because in the Hebrew, a lot of the animal parts are connected to words like the word rachamim, which is compassion, is from the word rechem, which means the womb. So you're seeing all these, this poor animal's insides being slain because of your sin. And then you're seeing that total animal and it reminds you of your animalistic uh, nature. 
And this is, of course, some of the rabbinic in interpretations of, uh, of uh, the, the idea of sacrifice. But anyway, that's got nothing to do with my message today. So let's get back on track. Ross, stop sidetracking me, please. <clears throat> Lord, you have been. Notice the emphasis, Lord, you have been our dwelling place throughout all generations. You would think that he would say the tabernacle has been our dwelling place, but he actually talks about the Lord himself. And um, if you look at the story of the Exodus in, uh, in the book of Exodus chapter 6, the Lord is about to send Moses to Pharaoh. And I mean, really, that's war. Moses is going to war. This is not a, a pleasure cruise. And uh, it's, it's also interesting in, in Exodus 10, in the English it says, go to Pharaoh. But it doesn't say that in the Hebrew. It says, bo le Pharaoh. It means come to Pharaoh. God doesn't say go. He says, come, come with me. You're not going alone. But before Moses went and spoke those words, the Lord said to him, if you read in Exodus 6, it says, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, I appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, that seems a little weird that Moses is ready to be equipped to, to go to war, to go to battle, and the Lord doesn't take him forward. He takes him back. He takes him back to his roots, his ancestors. And I don't think this was like a, a five-minute conversation. We, we read it in a few verses. This is something that probably happened over a period. Moses was, was thinking. He was contemplating. He was going over the stories of his forefathers. After all, he had no Bible, right? Moses had no, no Bible, right? Uh, he had no Old Testament. He had no New Testament. Where, where was his religion? Where was the, the manuscripts? Uh, it's believed that it was all throughout Egypt, the 400 years, that it was an oral tradition that they sat around the fireplace at, at dinner and they shared the stories. So he would have known a lot about these promises. One of the promises he probably would have known is when the Lord said to Abraham, your descendants will be slaves for 400 years. So uh, I wonder if they, the Israelites through that 400 years, I wonder if they were counting, if they had a, a way of actually counting those years and wondering whether when you know, Moses came of age, whether they re realized this is the moment, this is the time. But in any event, as Moses looked back on uh, the lives and thought of the lives of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, remember he wrote this toward the end of his life, Lord, you have been our dwelling place. And obviously, when it says throughout all generations, he only had a certain amount of historical books at that time of history. So thinking of Abraham, thinking of the journeys that he was on, thinking of Isaac, thinking of Jacob, thinking of their struggles, thinking of the story of Jacob when he was all alone in the desert at probably the lowest point in his life. He, remember the story when he... he dressed up in the hairy arms. He deceived his blind father, Isaac, stole from his brother, Esau, the birthright. And, be and because of that, we have a, a problem uh, even unto today in the Middle East. And um, 
Then he, and, and of course, when his mother Rebecca heard that Esau was angry and about to kill him, Rebecca said, get out of here. Go to my uncle Laban. So, you know, Jacob, he lost his family. He lost his father. He lost his brother. He lost his mother. Goes to his uncle and then he gets into wheeling and dealing there. He has to run away from Laban. He's in the middle of the desert. He's broke. The worst thing, running away from himself, running away from God. He goes to bed that night. What happens? He has a dream. And in that dream, you've got this ladder with angels ascending, descending, God standing on top saying, I am the God of your fathers. Uh, to you, Jacob, uh, I give this land. You're going to burst forth to the north, south, east, west. And, you know, I don't know if you, were, if you or I were in the throne room of God as judges, I don't know what you and I would do to Jacob. But the Lord didn't say one negative word. He just appears to Jacob and he promises, or he reaffirms the promises given to his forefathers. And uh, Jacob woke up and uh, he, you know, he says, surely God was in this place. I didn't even know it. And then he calls the name of that place Bethel or Bethel, which means the house of God. He made it the house of God. He was probably in the most, in his understanding, he probably thought that he was so far away from God and uh, he didn't deserve to be in the house of God and yet he calls that place the very house of God. To me, it's, it's astounding. That, but he did it. He made it. He put up that pillar. He made that rock. And... Uh, and I think when Moses was talking about this, Lord, you have been our dwelling place throughout all generations, where Abraham was, where Isaac was, when Abraham was uh, walking those uh, years of faith, barren years, being given the promises of God, and yet everything seemed to be delaying it, everything seemed to be against it. Every, talk about tests. And yet, God, you have been our dwelling place. Because where these patriarchs went, everywhere they went, what did they do? They set up altars. And the altars were the place of worship. The altars were the place of drawing near to God. So um, that's what it means. You know, it's great coming into the house of God here. But you can make the house of God anywhere. You can make it in your home it doesn't matter. And we learn this from Jacob. We learn this from Moses. Lord, you have been our Shekinah, our very, very Shekinah glory, our dwelling. And then he goes on and says, verse 2, before the mountains were born, you or you brought forth the whole world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. And maybe Moses was referring to the revelation that he got when he was at the burning bush, when Moses, and by the way, Moses, I think one of the characteristics that the Lord saw in Moses to call him as a leader is that he wasn't uh, emotionally disconnected from his world, his people. He felt what was going on. There were three cases in Exodus 3 and Exodus 4 where he saw 
gross injustice. The first is when he saw two Israelites, I'm sorry, two, uh, when he saw uh, Egyptians uh, mistreating his own uh, people. And remember what happened? He, he saw it, he looked this way, he looked that way, and, uh, and then he killed him, and then he opened up a, a hole in the ground and, uh, and buried him in the desert. I, 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 I personally, I think he, he, maybe he had ties with the mafia. That's, that's what they do, right? <laughs> anyway. <laughs> then straight after that, he heard two of his own people arguing. And he saw his own brothers, his own family fighting, quarreling. And he didn't like it. It upset him. And he went over and he, he tried to sort it out. He tried to be a peacemaker, a mediator. And they didn't like it. They said, you know, who do you think you are, you know? And then the third time straight after is when he had to flee and he was in Midian and he went to the well and he saw uh, the Midianites uh, giving Jethro, the high priest of Midian's daughters, a hard time. So... Um, Obviously, Moses saw the Ten Commandments movie and saw Charlton Heston with the oil chest go over and rescue. So Moses did the same thing. But, but the point is, he, he, he saw the injustice. He saw what was going on. And straight after that, the Lord appeared in the burning bush. And uh, Moses went over. And of course, the great revelation that Moses had was like in, in verse 2, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Uh, when the Lord said, I will be what I will be. And so Moses, uh, he, that, that stood with him his whole life, his whole ministry. You know, in, in the Hebrew, it's only the, the only language in the world where the word life is plural. In Hebrew, we say chaim. Like when we raise a glass, we say l'chaim. Okay? You know that phrase, right? Okay, everyone? L'chaim. Okay? And it means to life. But the word is plural. And it's interesting. When, a good example is when you look at the life of Moses, uh, we, and, and the same with every one of us. He had, in a way, many lives. Like you and I, we have our you know, infancy and then childhood and then teenage years and we grow and we go into work. Um, even in the days of Jesus, they apparently they had about five born-again experiences throughout a lifetime. You're born again. Like when you are a young boy, you are able to come up and speak at the pulpit where you have a, what's called a bar mitzvah. Then you have another born-again experience when you get married and then when you have children. By the way, in those days, getting married was like 14, 15 years old, something like that. The average uh, age that a, a girl gave birth was about 12 or 13. And uh, so that's why when Nicodemus had that encounter with the Lord, he said, how can a man be born again when he is old? That was the key. Nicodemus had probably been through all of those born-again experiences, and he's like, well, how can a man be born again when he is old? But in any event, um, looking at the life of Moses, he, you know, most people break his life up into three key periods. 
three 40-year periods. One is when he lived in Egypt, then the second time also in Egypt, but when he was brought up in, in, in Pharaoh's household and all the wisdom and the art and the uh, culture of Egypt, um, which people are still studying today. In fact, they say Egyptologists have discovered that Egypt was a very fatherless society. How have they discovered that? Because they've only been able to find mummies, not daddies. <laughs> I should keep these for the tour, Ross. Whatever. And then the third period is when he was out in the desert. And these are three key periods in, in the life of Moses. And um, so he, uh, he has seen the, uh, throughout all generations, throughout his life, he has seen God to be a dwelling place. He's seen God to be everlasting. I will be what I will be. Every moment of the way. God was there for every need that he had. So if we can move on to verse 3, where Moses is saying, you turn people back to dust, saying, return to dust, you mortals. A thousand years in your sight is like a day that has gone by, or like a night in the watch. Yet you sweep away people away in the sleep of death. They are like the new grass in the of the morning. In the morning it springs up new, but by evening it is dry and withered. So obviously Moses, he didn't have a cell phone or a television. He had a lot of time out in that desert to think and meditate. That was a, you know, the thing is when we read the Bible and we read it all of, of these amazing exploits that David and Moses and Abraham did, but we don't actually read between the lines. And when you read between the lines, you realize that most of the time they were just shepherds, tent dwellers, nomads that lived a very quiet, simple, humble life in the backside of the desert. And obviously Moses is kind of, he's looking at nature and he's connecting nature to man, which a lot of the Bible is filled with. And it was Ein, uh, Albert Einstein who said that the three keys to understanding God and yourself is history, animals, and nature. And uh, I think he was right. Uh, when you think about that, uh, there's a lot to learn studying the, the, the animal world, the, 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 uh, the plant life. Most of the writers or the speakers in the Bible referred to God or people uh, through nature. You know, Psalm 1, man is like a tree. Uh, Whoever believes in me out of his belly will flow rivers of living water. And the book of Psalms is filled with uh, synonyms for, uh, for God, for man. And when we go to Ein Gedi in the desert, we'll, we'll take you to some of those places. Um, but Moses obviously is looking at the plants, looking how they sprout up, and then the next day they're gone. And how fleeting life is. And again, quoting Einstein, he said that life is like a hamster, where you're like running around on the wheel, just going around and around and around. Sometimes you get off and you do something special, but most of the time you're on the wheel. And while you're on that wheel, you're thinking of your past, your present, and your future. And there is the element of time. And 
quite interesting how time is such a mystery. One minute, 10 years is gone. 20 years, is where did that go? And um, it's interesting if you read the book of Ecclesiastes, King Solomon, also a very wise man, at the end of his life, he kind of gives an account. And remember, this guy, he had everything that you could imagine in life. You know, wealth, vineyards, wisdom, woman, pleasure, everything he had. And yet he calls it like chasing after the wind, like fleeting, uh, because it's everything on the earth, he says. But then he, he flips it around in, in chapter 3 where he says that God has placed eternity in the hearts of men. And so the difference between looking at things from a worldly perspective, which is all just fleeting. I mean, take it from the wisest man who had everything. He says it's like, you know, chevel chevelim. And the, and the Hebrew word chevel is actually the Hebrew name for Abel. In Hebrew, we say chevel. And he uses the term chevel chevelim. Why, what's the connection? So when you look at the life of chevel, Abel, it was a waste because he was a righteous man. He did nothing wrong, and yet he was killed by his brother, Cain. What a waste. And uh, you know why Cain didn't like his brother? Um, simply because, you know, Abel was a righteous man, and Cain, he, you know, he couldn't live in his footsteps. Let's face it, he wasn't Abel. <laughs> I know, it's bad, I know. <laughs> That's why my kids don't talk to me. <laughs> so, um, if we could uh, move ahead to verse 7. Then Moses refers to a terrible uh, uh, moment in the history of Israel. We are consumed by your anger and terrified by your indignation. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. All our days pass away under your wrath. We finish our years with a moan. Our days may come to 70 years or 80 if our strength endures. Yet the best of them are but trouble and sorrow, for they quickly pass and we fly away. If only we knew the power of your anger. Your wrath is as great as the fear that is your due. Really encouraging words from Moses. <laughs> what is he referring to? He's referring to what happened at Mount Sinai. Moses was up there. Remember Moses, the, how the Israelites were complaining, complaining, complaining. Moses obviously, you know, he said, Lord, these Israelites, they're giving me such a headache. And the Lord said, go up the mountain and take these two tablets. Moses was up at Mount Sinai and remember what happened. And this is a key. A lot of people think in that story that it, the problem was building the, the idol. And that was a problem, of course. But the key, it says, when they saw Moses delaying coming down. Now, why is that such an important verse? Up until that moment, I believe that the Israelites, they really hadn't developed a strong personal relationship with God. Why? Because Moses did everything for them. When they were in Egypt, 
They were whining, they were complaining, they were, they were suffering. Moses was the guy who went to Pharaoh. Moses was the guy that called down the plagues. Moses was the guy that lifted up the rod as the Red Sea parted. When they got into the desert, Moses was the guy who spoke to the rock or struck the rock. Uh, when they were in the desert, the manna just fell from heaven. The quails were just there every morning. The Israelites didn't need to do anything, right? They hadn't really developed faith muscles, if I could use that term. Moses was the guy. So while they were waiting for Moses, they got a little bit impatient, maybe a little bit of separation anxiety, and they panicked a little bit. And they ended up doing crazy stuff. And they built this, uh, this idol. And so this is the sin. This was the, 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 the thing that Moses is talking about. And as a result, 3,000 Israelites were struck dead. This was where they were receiving the written law, which is really interesting. And, and by the way, it was 50 days after Passover that they were there. This is what we call the first Pentecost. The word pente means 50. It was 50 days after they received the written law, which is interesting if you read in the New Testament, 50 days after the Passover, when the Spirit came to write God's laws on our heart, 3,000 were saved. It's just a very interesting correlation. But he goes on, if we could uh, uh, um, forward it, he then goes on, he says, teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. And I think it's connected to what he was saying before and, and this story at Mount Sinai. In other words, while we're waiting on God, while we're waiting on our Moses or our, our deliverer, the one who brings us the word, let us not be unwise. Let us be proactive. While we're waiting for our prayers to be answered, while well, we're waiting for our healing or our situation to turn, uh, don't get separation anxiety. Don't think that God has neglected or forgotten you like maybe some of the Israelites thought Moses had fallen asleep. But be proactive. Teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. And then, of course, Moses goes into a kind of a different mode here and he says, and uh, this, this in verse 13 says, relent, O Lord. And in other translations, it says, um, turn again, O God, turn again. Shuva Adonai. Uh, how long will it be? Have compassion on your servants. Lord, turn the tide. Must we live all of our lives? I think Moses was saying, must we live all of our lives um, paying the consequences of our sins? And as I said earlier, and you may not know this, but whatever sin you have committed, God will always totally forgive you. If you confess it, he will forgive you. The thing is, he doesn't always deliver us from the consequences of our sins. You know, if someone murders you, if you, if you murder someone, you go to prison. Okay, while you're in prison, you say, God, forgive me. And God will forgive you. But is he going to deliver you from the consequences? Maybe, maybe not. And that's the, that's the tough one. And we have to live with that. We have to somehow embrace that and find the I am. God, I need you to be with me in prison. I need you to help me work through or work out 
are me paying the consequences of my sin. And there is grace there, total grace. Um, but Moses is saying, Lord, turn, turn it. I don't want to live. You know, how long will it be? Have compassion on your servants. And then he says, satisfy us in the morning with your unfailing love that we may sing for joy and be glad all the days of the, our lives. And then now I think he's talking about uh, the tabernacle. The tabernacle, make us glad for as many days you have afflicted us, for as many days we have seen trouble. Um, in different translation, it brings it out more, where he's really, I think, referring to the tabernacle when they come into the land with the whole priestly uh, functioning. And, uh, and by the way, it was the priests who went ahead of uh, the army when they came into the, the promised land, which is very interesting because in Israel today, um, ultra-Orthodox Jews, they refuse to serve in the army and actually they say, we are the front line of the army because of our prayers, because of our studying Torah and because of us keeping Shabbat. That's what they really believe. What do you think? Do you agree or not agree? It's quite interesting uh, uh, discussion. Come on the bus and we'll, we'll discuss that one. <laughs> so um, this is a prayer. God, turn my situation around. Turn our situation around. And of course, this is a historical thing, especially during the time of the judges. You know, that cycle where the Israelites, everything would be going good. God sent the rains. God defeated the enemies. And then when everything was good, what happened? The Israelites became slack. They fell into sin. So God allowed an enemy to rise up. And then the Israelites cried out, God, please turn. And then he would turn. It's that cycle. So, um, you know, Moses, as I mentioned, he's considered one of the greatest uh, shepherds in our history. In fact, it says in the book of Deuteronomy, no man was greater than Moses. And, uh, and yet, Moses himself, he actually prophesied in Deuteronomy 18.18, 18, where he said, one day the Lord your God will raise up unto you a prophet like me. Listen to him. So who was Moses talking about? We believe that he was talking about someone that was born in Bethlehem, Beit Lechem, the house of bread. He's the bread of life. And what's interesting is that when he was born in Bethlehem, Pharaoh, not Pharaoh, Herod, Herod the Great, killed all the baby boys in Bethlehem. And there's a very interesting correlation, isn't there, between Pharaoh killing all the baby boys and yet Moses was divinely spared. And the same with the Lord Jesus in Bethlehem. Moses grew up. He became a mediator. Our Lord, he became a mediator. 1 Timothy 2.5. There is one God and one mediator between God and men. The man, Christ Jesus. And by the way, the term Christ Jesus uh, you know, sometimes it, it will read Jesus Christ, sometimes Christ Jesus. Christ is not his name. Christ is a title. It means anointed one or Mashiach, Messiah. So the emphasis is that he, he's functioning as the anointed one. 
And if you read in Isaiah 61, you'll read all about what the role of that prophet one is. What does it say? To heal the brokenhearted, everyone. To open the eyes of the blind. To open the prison doors to those that are captive. Maybe there are some people here who are captive to something, who are blind to something. May God open your eyes. Come to the Messiah. Come to Yeshua, Jesus. The one greater than Moses. Moses also was the lawgiver. He went up to the mountain. Matthew 5, it says, seeing a multitude, he went up on a mountain. The one like Moses. Of course, Moses was the deliverer and Jesus is our deliverer. But Moses also, when the Israelites sinned, the Lord told him to take a serpent and put it on a pole. And when the Israelites, who had been bitten, looked at that pole, gazed at that pole, they would be healed. Now, the, the idea of gazing is not just a quick, you know, open the door, put your head in, gaze, and then leave. I think it's a bit more than that. And what's interesting is the Lord didn't say to Moses, now I want you to put it on a, on a two by four pole or a gold pole. He didn't actually give him instructions what kind of pole. Moses chose to put it on a bronze or a um, copper uh, pole. <clears throat> and obviously he didn't do that by mistake. Because the rabbis say that when people looked at that pole, and not, they didn't only just see the serpent, they actually saw their face. They saw the reflection from that copper. And guys, that's the idea of not just confession and repentance, but of penitence, working out our sin. What caused us to sin? Why did I do that? Why did I make those mistakes? And as we continually looking at the one that he, the Lord himself said in John 3, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. So as we keep looking and gazing at the one that was lifted up for us, the one who was bitten, who took that poison for us, as we keep looking at him, yeah, we see our reflection. We see the bad. But we also got to learn to leave that sin on that cross, knowing that he took it for us. And this is not only going to be part of our forgiveness, it's going to be part of our healing. And then we can experience more and more like Moses, that Lord, throughout all our generations, you are our dwelling place. Amen and thank you. You've been listening to The Rocks Podcast. Our regular services are held on Sunday mornings at 8, 9.30, and 11.30 a.m. in Santa Rosa, California. If you'd like to learn more, please visit our website at cctherock.org.